So here we are at episode one, and there's a lot of topics to cover, but what to go with first? I wanted to start with something that talked about why the 90s was different, and what led to this alternative explosion. But also, what is this whole alternative thing anyway? Well, to figure all that out, we actually have to go back to before the 90s. The single most important thing to happen to the 90s Australian music industry actually happened in 1989. But to even get to 1989, we have to go back further, to a strange time in history known as the mid-70s, and how a radio station changed everything. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at the coming of age of the radio station Triple J. Edward Gough Whitlam became the 21st Prime Minister of Australia in 1972. But Gough, as everyone called him, was different to many of the Australian Prime Ministers who came before. When he stormed to power in 1972, it was the first time that his party, the left-wing Labour Party, had been in office in 23 years. And he brought with him sweeping change and innovation. He was a man interested in moving the country further with arts, technology and services. All areas that had fallen away with decades of neglect. Australia in the early 70s was a sleepy, faraway annex of the Commonwealth. It was something Gough wanted to change and he was willing to spend government money to do it. The campaign that brought Whitlam to power was indicative of his grasp of arts and technology. At the heart was a TV commercial a star-studded extravaganza called It's Time. And for the first time ever in Australia, there was a campaign song and an accompanying film clip in full colour that lit up TVs around the nation. The old black and white world of Australian politics got a colour TV kick. Here's Gough Whitlam's 1972 campaign song, It's Time. in office, Whitlam enacted dozens, probably hundreds of changes. You can find lots of internet lists about Whitlam's achievements. A lot of them were about people, for women, First Nations people, the working class, the uneducated. But for our story, there's two other things that Whitlam really cared about, and they were arts and technology. Whitlam really loved the arts, and he knew its importance. In his time in office, he created the National Gallery of Australia, the Australian Council for the Arts, the Australian Film and Television School, and much more. Whitlam also approved the purchase of Blue Poles, the famous painting by American painter Jackson Pollock for 1.3 million Australian dollars for the National Gallery. 1.3 million in 1973 is around 12 million now. None of this stuff came cheap, and there was plenty of Whitlam's enemies crying foul about uncontrolled spending. Government money for a painting? That was crazy talk. For technology, Whitlam created the telephone network that would be Telstra and modernised the post office. He also passed the laws that allowed for the FM network in Australia. And that last one, 
he not only changed radio technology, he had a plan to use it to his advantage. It's perhaps more incredible that Whitlam achieved all this in just three years, as he had one of the shortest ever tenures as a sitting Prime Minister. He didn't finish his first and only term. Before we get to Whitlam's downfall, we have to talk about Whitlam's role in the 90s Australian alternative music thing. Included in his list of achievements was setting up a public radio station for young Australians. Cynics on both sides of politics will say that this was just a way for his government to spout Labour propaganda to young voters, and it's probably true. Goff knew that teenagers could play an important role in politics, and he reduced the voting age to 18. He was also savvy enough to know that teenagers liked music, and technology was always a good way to reach the kids. People, technology, and arts. That government youth station was launched in January of 1975. It was set up within the ABC, the state-run Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the closest thing Australia has to the BBC. The idea was something that could connect young Australians everywhere, but due to technology, it began in Sydney only. The station's call sign was 2JJ, and it gave the station its name, Double J. But Whitlam would not be around to enjoy it much longer. There was just no way that Whitlam's enemies would allow all this unnecessary spending on arts, technology and social services. The opposition party, the Liberal Party, in late 1975, pounced. So much has been written and dissected about what happened next. But essentially, the Liberal Party held back supply unless Whitlam called an election. Whitlam called their bluff and triggered a shutdown. But then, in a tremendous move, the Liberal Party basically went to a higher power, the highest office in the land, the Queen over in Britain, and dobbed. With the backing of Her Majesty, who was the true legal Australian head of state, Whitlam was dismissed. They just got rid of him. Not through an election, but an undemocratic coup. On the 11th of November 1975, Whitlam was dismissed as the Prime Minister of Australia, 10 months after Double J had launched. The fact that the unelected Queen was able to dismiss our democratically elected Prime Minister led to people wondering about her place and if Australia should be a republic. That idea would gain momentum in the 90s. The story of the Australian Republican movement and alternative music is one we will return to. But Whitlam got his back in the end. Because another thing he did in his short three years in power was to dump God Save the Queen as the Australian national anthem. And it was one final music-related fuck you to the crown. He died in 2014, aged 98. But it's not the last we'll hear of him in this story. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Back to the radio station he helped to start. Double J launched on the 19th of January 1975, and if you were tuning in at the very start, you would have heard this. Oh, you just like me. <laughs> We'd just like you anyway. Uh, on behalf of everybody at Double J, welcome. Guess who's nervous? <laughs> nervous as can be. Uh, my name is. Uh... The first song the station played was You Just Like Me Because I'm Good in Bed by Skyhooks, taken from their seminal album Living in the 70s, which had just come out. The song was receiving no airplay on commercial stations because it was banned owing to its subject matter. It kind of talked about sex. Being banned on Australian radio in the 70s isn't like being banned now. 
Kaysan, the song by Cold Chisel, widely regarded as one of the most popular songs by one of the most popular bands in Australia, and one of the most played songs on radio today, was also banned when it was released. A lot of songs were banned. It probably says more about how airwaves were controlled by a small amount of people more than any moral outrage. Still, a point was being made by Double J with Skyhooks. The Australian radio landscape in 75 was either ABC Radio, the state broadcaster, or this rich, powerful bunch of commercial radio broadcasters like 2SM in Sydney. And those commercial radio stations stuck to what was safe, played a lot of internationally big names, and were not there to challenge or offend. Playing Skyhooks was the opposite. It was supporting Australian music, and it was talking about something more risque. You could say that Double J, from its very first seconds, were providing an alternative to what was being played on mainstream radio. You could, you know, say that. When Double J started, they were told to do just that. Do what commercial radio was not doing. Two young men who were in charge of running the station, Marius Webb and Ron Moss, were both young ABC staffers that someone had considered radical. So management decided maybe they would know how to run this station. They were basically told to make this radio station for young people using ABC spare parts. Here's Marius Webb talking about Double J. When Double J began, everybody had ideas. Everybody was full of ideas about what it should be and what it should do. And um, I guess what it did was synthesise a lot of the very general ideas, i.e. into we believed in innovative programming, we believed in uh, playing music that wasn't being played at the time on the radio, we believed in, you know, playing things that were of interest to young people that weren't being, we felt, covered by the other media. They also asked around the ABC for staff, and what they got were people like Chris Winters, a late-night radio presenter whose afro made him stand out. They also poached a hip commercial radio announcer called Bill Drake, whose real name was Holger Brockman. He was working at 2SM, where he was told to change his name on commercial radio because it sounded too foreign. On Double J, he could use his real name, and he was the guy who played that Skyhooks track, and he was the very first voice heard on the station. Someone suggested a young music fan named Arnold Frollos to work in the music team. He was delivering flowers at the time, and he did his interview in between deliveries. The station was given a weak signal on the far edge of the radio dial. Maybe it didn't sound the best, and maybe it didn't reach as many people as they hoped, but what Double J did on its little patch of dirt was important. Firstly, it didn't have a playlist. Commercial radio was tightly playlisted. A committee chooses a small list of songs that everyone must play, and sometimes it was as little as 20 songs. There's the Elvis Costello joke about radio stations and playlists, and the punchline is something like, that's why they call them frequencies. But Double J let the presenters choose their own music. There was no house sound. They hired music heads and let them loose. And these DJs could be quite adventurous, playing demos, live tracks, long tracks, and all manner of commercial radio poison. What made it work was the presenters, and the curating came from their tastes. And as music fans, the presenters usually spent their nights seeing local bands. So for Sydney's local music scene, Double J became essential. There's stories of fans like the Celibate Rifles finishing a recording session and taking the track straight to Double J for whatever DJ to put it straight to air. That's how connected they were to the local scene and how freewheeling they were about their playlist. It wasn't just the music. Double J had a strong news arm that was immediately reporting from the view of Young Australia, 
and it immediately put them at odds with the establishment. They were sued by the New South Wales Police Commissioner over how he was portrayed in a story. The Conservative government, the one that replaced Whitlam, called for the station to be shut down. But just two months after the station had launched, it had already apparently grabbed 17% of Sydney's radio listeners from 18 to 24. It was just too big to quietly shut down. But that's okay. External forces couldn't kill it, but internal forces would do that job. More on that later. Double J may have been groundbreaking for Australia and for Sydney, but it took a lot of cues from American College Radio and British Pirate Radio, and Double J weren't alone in Australia. In many cities across Australia, there was some radio bandwidth given over to community arts interests, and those community radio stations also had some money coming in from subscribers. Often tied to universities, and hence open-minded young people, these stations played and supported local music too, or underground music from international bands. They were our close equivalent to the American college radio scene, and they had the same no-playlist ethos. Triple R in Melbourne remains one of the best radio stations in Australia. It started in 1976, shortly after Double J started, servicing Melbourne and Melbourne bands with no playlist. Triple Z started in 1975 in Brisbane and was a hub of progressive political activity in the state of Queensland during a particularly oppressive era. There's RTR in Perth, 3D Radio in Adelaide and many others. Together, these stations formed a bit of a community radio network, playing to the underground, also filling the gap left by big-budget commercial radio stations. Their success also showed that there was something happening in the area of radio. A new audience was there, in every city, and they were hungry for more than what commercial radio had to offer. In 1980, Double J's sign changed when it went to the FM network. Now 3JJ, it was named Triple J. Its signal sounded better, but it didn't change much else about the station. It continued to be a little radio paradise for the radicals in Sydney. It continued to play an important alternative role to the mainstream, supporting Australian music, supporting independent music from around the world, and giving a voice to other ideas throughout the 80s. But in 1989, as the decade closed, everything started to change. Whitlam's intention was always for his youth radio network to be a national one. This simple action changed the course of Australian music. Why was Triple J going national so important? Why does it change everything? And why is it episode one? Well, it's about people, technology and arts. Australia is a big country geographically, but the population is scattered. In the 80s and into the 90s, trying to get your message to everyone was not easy, especially if you were trying to broadcast anything. If you wanted to do it, the first step would be to buy a series of extremely expensive transmission towers and installing them around the country. And even if you had those, you were probably relying on advertisers to help pay for them. And finding local advertisers are easier than finding national ones in a country as big and as spread out as Australia. That's why the big commercial radio networks still have local news and ad teams. But Triple J could do it. Triple J could reach a lot of people. Because they didn't have advertisers, they were part of the state broadcaster ABC and they didn't run ads. And the ABC owned towers. It was only internal politics that had held it back so far. So in 1989, they started to broadcast outside of Sydney, first turning on in Melbourne, then all the other state capitals, with regional Australia to follow. With a flick of a switch, Triple J were reaching more young Australian music fans than anyone else. They were reaching them with adventurous independent music programming and new radical ideas. And it was the same song all over the country at the same time. Why is that important? Well. 
Take the UK. It's a much bigger music market, but geographically smaller in size. In Britain, it's more common for a band to hit it big early. Because their radios reached more people, getting played on a cool program like John Peel's show on BBC One meant that every music fan in the UK knew who you were. And because the UK is smaller, it's easy to capitalise on that with touring, interviews with local papers, and just getting around to everyone. And suddenly you were off to the races. Now, take the US. There, it is more common for a band to find an audience in a small part of the country first. You get played on one college radio station, leading to a tour of a local area, and a couple of cities nearby. And then hopefully that city's college radio might pick up on you. Rinse and repeat before you work your way up to a commercial network that might playlist you across a bigger area. In the US, you tour and tour and tour, capitalising on your regional hit, and you make it big around album two or three. If it was simply a race to get a million people to hear your song, I would always bet on a UK band over a US one. Triple J going national moved Australia to be more like the UK. It supercharged opportunities for bands that they played, and the bands that they played were often Australian, independent, or an alternative to the mainstream. Getting played on Triple J meant suddenly music fans in several cities knew you, not just Sydney, and you could tour and make more money. Here's another way to look at it. Netflix. Netflix, as of this writing, has about 400 billion customers. And if you get your show on Netflix, you become available to people all around the world at the same time, as opposed to before when you had to try and get a local TV station to buy your show. Netflix, it's just on for everyone straight away. So in a 90s, smaller way, that's what Triple J Going National did to music in Australia. It was on right away. Triple J Going National wasn't a smooth process that pleased everyone involved. In fact, the years of 1989 to 1991 were possibly the craziest ever for Triple J. There was a battle to be fought and won and lost about what Triple J should be and what Triple J should stand for. With more people and more audience comes more power. And the ABC, who ran Triple J, knew it. To go with the change to a national signal, they wanted other changes, like establishing a playlist and a management structure. Songs would have to be approved before they were played, and DJs would no longer have all the power. Basically, at this point, the ABC realised that their competition would be commercial radio, and not community radio. And Triple J had to be more corporate for all the good and bad that that brings. There was probably political pressure as well. The fight between management and the staff would play out publicly. In 1990, someone played 22 seconds of NWA's Fuck the Police. It was, ironically, part of a news piece about the offensive nature of the song, which was banned all around the world. NWA's Fuck the Police is perhaps the most controversial song ever written, but it's brutally honest, talking about the experience of the band. Because I don't care about being banned, here is Fuck the Police by NWA. Every 
nigga is selling narcotics. Not only is it full of rude words, it is the sentiment of violence against the police that really made the song offensive in some quarters. 22 seconds of it was enough for the pitchforks to come out. The ABC fired the young news editor and management asked for the song not to be played. And not that Triple J was playing it, but being asked not to play it was enough to warrant a rebellion. Remember, when Double J started, the first song they played was a song that another station banned. ABC management had crossed the line. A number of staff and on-air talent went on strike. From 9am on the 7th of May, 1990, Triple J put on another NWA track, Express Yourself. This song had no swearing, but there was a message about freedom of expression. Then followed a brief recording about industrial action interrupting normal programming. And then they played express yourself again and then they played the pre-recorded message again then express yourself again then the message i couldn't find a recording of the message but here's express yourself by nwa i'm expressing with my full capabilities and now i'm living in correctional facilities because some don't agree with how i do this i get straight and meditate like a buddhist i'm dropping flavor my behavior is hereditary but my technique is very necessary blame it on ice cube because he said it gets when you got a subject and a predicate Add it on a dope beat And it'll make you think Some suckers just tickle me pink to my stomach Cause they don't flow like this one You know what? I won't hesitate to this one or two before I'm through So don't try to sing this Some drop science Well, I'm dropping English Even if yella makes it a cappella. I still express, yo, I don't smoke weed or sex This continued from 9am to 4.30pm, the song being played 82 times in a row. In the background, management tried to appease the staff and finally rehired the fired editor. But the fight for Triple J was just starting. Changes were happening and it didn't help that the person brought in to oversee Triple J's national expansion was Barry Chapman. Chapman had been program director at 2SM, one of the Sydney commercial radio stations the one that had asked Holger Brockman to change his foreign-sounding name and had banned Skyhooks. Long time as a Triple J had years of seeing 2SM as the enemy. Now, here he was calling the shots. Management would be hard-pressed to find a more controversial appointment. In August 1990, Triple J basically restarted. Staff were asked to re-interview for their jobs. When that resulted in a bunch of beloved DJs and staff losing their jobs, there was outrage from the listeners. A lot of the staff and talent were coincidentally the ones who went on strike over the NWA incident. There was even a public demonstration with 4,000 music fans taking to Sydney's town hall to protest the changes. I mean, people actually protested changes at a radio station. That's how much Triple J meant to people. The protests were big news in music circles and for the music scene at the time. It was branded in some corners as the Triple J Bland Out. But the dumping of some of Triple J's most iconic on-air talent didn't even make Triple J's timeline of their own history when they celebrated 40 years in 2015. Because history is told by the victors, and whatever the station was in 1990 that those 4,000 people were hoping to hang on to, it was gone by 1991. In 1991, Triple J unveiled a new logo. With it was a lineup of new presenters, new shows, and a playlist. Yes, a lot of it would be because of Barry Chapman. Chapman came in and he put what worked on other radio stations onto Triple J. No more specialist shows just whenever. There was now a comedy breakfast show, news in the morning, charismatic drive time hosts, more intimate and special listening at night. 
Chapman rightly realised that good radio doesn't really change despite genre. Who cares if these records were recorded down the road and on the cheap? The reason people turned on the radio remained the same, and Triple J still follows the skeleton that Chapman implemented. It wasn't just Chapman that was new around the station, there was all this new on-air talent to replace the ones that were ousted. Some of the old guard survived. Maynard, a high-energy, charismatic breakfast presenter, would become even more famous to a bunch of new Australian listeners. Arnold Frollo's, the flower delivery man who was part of the Double J launch, stayed on as music director, controlling that controversial playlist and the power that came with it. They were joined by new faces and new voices, like the 16-year-old Michael Tun from Adelaide and the outspoken Helen Razor and the very funny Mikey Robbins at breakfast. Triple J also launched a sports comedy duo Roy and HG. There was a young nerd named Richard Kingsmill who would provide wonderful new music shows and in-depth band profiles called The J-Files. It says a lot that these presenters would become known to a generation of music fans as much as the bands, and that fame would mean that many of them would spin off into TV hosting and long careers in media. You'd have favourites, and you'd have ones you'd find annoying, but they were Triple J presenters. We would be spending a lot of time with them. I'm not going to get much further into the Triple J story in this episode. There will be more episodes about Triple J to come and the amazing, groundbreaking work they did in the next decade. Like Live at the Wireless, Unearthed, and of course, The Hottest 100. All that will come. But there's a couple of other aspects of Triple J at the start of the 90s I think is worth looking at. One, and the one I've heard most often, is about what Sydney lost. The ties between Triple J and Sydney ran deep, and it was a vital network for local bands, venues, record stores, and more. When Triple J went national, they had to stop being Sydney-centric. People doubted whether Triple J would, for example, champion an up-and-coming Adelaide band all the way from distant Sydney. So Triple J had to represent more than just Sydney. Now the question is how far they went. There are certainly plenty of bands who say Triple J overcorrected, that they stopped supporting Sydney in an effort to not look biased and to appeal to all the cities now discovering Triple J. I don't know how true that is, but the bottom line is that Triple J was no longer a Sydney station and that hurt Sydney. Melbourne kept Triple R and gained Triple J. Sydney, it was a loss. That loss for Sydney led to some ex-Triple J staffers to turn to community radio, just like Triple R. FBI Radio was established in 1995 after years of hard work and it took eight years to finally get a permanent licence. The Welcome Mat, a Sydney band, released a very pointed single in 1993 called Play Me, which doesn't take much reading between the lines to hear what it's about. They were a pretty big band in Sydney, but Triple J abandoned them. More angry is Sydney band Front End Loader's 1995 track, Arnold's a Genius. Directed at Triple J's music director Arnold Frollo's, the song takes pot shots at his choices like safe commercial rock bands such as Chocolate Starfish and The Sharp. It says a lot about how much Triple J held the market when bands were writing songs about it. This lack of airplay will come up again and again. Anyway, here's Arnold's a Genius by Front End Loader. Play those songs that mean so much to us The chocolate starfish that mom 
the other one is even tougher to quantify, but it's worth talking about. In fact, we have to talk about it. It's whether Triple J was a good thing for alternative music at all, and why people care so much about a radio station. Radio stations don't usually have a political mission. Whitlam gave Double J a mission from the start, be an alternative. The problem for Triple J is that they would become really successful. And if you're really successful, what are you being the alternative to? How can you be the rebellion when you're in power? Throughout the 90s, people protested and complained about Triple J losing its way, that it was better when it was Double J. And people say similar things now, that Triple J was better in the 90s or whatever. John Tingwell, editor of Sydney Street Press Drum Media, said that letters complaining about Triple J would come in on a weekly basis. I think whenever anyone criticises what Triple J is playing, whether it's not Sydney music enough, or it's too commercial, or it's too dance, or it's too beach rock, or too new metal, it says more about the criticiser than the station. You're not supposed to like everything by one radio station. If your music taste happens to be exactly the same as a set of songs on a Triple J playlist, you need to get out more. But what I think is interesting is why people care so much. It's going to be the conversation I'm going to have in future episodes. Why people feel so strongly that there should be a voice that is an alternative to the mainstream, and how that push and pull between alternative and mainstream works. Because Triple J weren't that alternative. They were still very different from commercial radio. They played somewhere like 40% Australian music. They played, in any given year, at least 50% of songs not heard on other stations. The other commercial stations copied the songs that they played once Triple J had turned them into stars, and major labels ended up signing them. What even was mainstream and alternative would blur, and that's where Triple J sits. Triple J is not designed to be the cutting edge of alternative, especially after 1991. Nothing that big can be. Triple J makes a big deal about how Skyhooks was the first song ever played on the station, and all the symbolism that comes with that. But after Skyhooks, they played Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, released in 1968. So on one side, you can say that they broke the mould still, playing a song that was six minutes long that you normally wouldn't hear on radio. The other side says, you played a six-year-old song by one of the biggest bands who ever lived from one of their highest-selling albums ever. There's two sides. And when people say that in the 90s, Triple J playing Pearl Jam over Celibate Rifles was wrong, I can see both sides too. When Double J started, the original staff grumbled at being put at the far end of the radio dial when no one could find them. Triple J, as it grew, went more to the middle, and rightly so, because the middle plays a very important part. Triple J was a gateway drug for a generation of young Australians to discover alternative music. That it was so good at being a gateway drug is why it's so important. Triple J moving from left of the dial to more in the middle meant those who were left of the dial lost something. Alternative media, music or otherwise, needs a platform. And it's strange to think of people protesting at the city town hall over a radio station in this day and age of hashtag activism. But it shows how much it means to certain people that we have more than just a mainstream. Pretty much every band I will talk about and every scene I will cover from here on in will involve Triple J in some way. Whether the station played them, or worse, didn't play them. Or double worse, started playing them, and then on the next album, stopped playing them. They flicked a switch and created a new audience. The story of that audience is the one I'm going to tell, because I was that audience. (laughs) 
Australian music writer Toby Creswell announced that he was writing a book about Triple J at one point. It even had a catalogue number and it's still listed as coming soon online in 2015. I'm not sure what happened to it, but I was excited to hear a book was coming. It's an exciting story. I wasn't really old enough to experience Triple J at the dawn of the 90s, but I know a lot of the people who did. Apart from a lot of desktop research, this episode comes from stories that people have told me. Certainly a lot of people I know claim to be part of those town hall protests. A lot of the characters here will return. We'll meet Barry Chapman again, Richard Kingsmill, Toby Creswell, and of course, Gough Whitlam reappears too. It was really fun to read about Gough Whitlam's achievements all over again. This episode, episode one, didn't really talk about the bands and the music so much. Don't worry, we'll get into that and we'll have playlists and more stuff on the website. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Ace. To find out more about this episode and the podcast in general, check out justace90s.com which is justace90s.com. Along with the show notes and playlists for every episode, there's also going to be a bunch of lists and other things I compiled during my research. There's also more about the project overall and some frequently asked questions. On the website, you can also find ways of supporting this podcast. There's a Patreon. At the moment, there's just the one tier, just enough to support the podcast. There's also a link to a service called Buy Me A Coffee where you can digitally buy me a coffee, I guess. All this goes to support the hosting and the production of the podcast, which is all done by one lone person, which is me. It also helps keep it ad-free and independent, so any support helps with that. Depending on how this season goes, and if there's interest, I'll do other fun ideas. Patreon supporters will get a discount on any of that stuff, or get it for free on a higher tier. If I get there, we'll work something out. Links on the website and in the show description. The other no-cost way to support the podcast is to help spread the word, tell a friend, share the links, and leave the podcast a review on iTunes. A five-star review would be lovely. You can follow this podcast on all social media with the same handle, at JustAce90s, which is JustAce90s. The Just Ace podcast is produced by me. If you want to get in touch and get in contact, or if you have any questions, just email JustAce90s at gmail.com. Start again.